Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that at times this path that you've set our feet on is difficult. We recognize, Lord, that you continue calling us again and again to the great commission to serve out of our love for Christ those who you created in your own image. You sent Christ to model that for us. More importantly, Father, you sent Christ that he might die and impart that righteousness to us that we can in his strength, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be a people that loves and serves as Christ did and does even this hour. I ask, Lord, that you would be gracious with us during this time as we look again at your holy word. I ask, Lord, that you would speak to us directly. Let this not be a time of religion, but a time when your word is spoken and that your people rightly hear, and in hearing, we follow Christ. We want to obey Him this morning for all the right reasons, Lord. Cultivate that in our hearts, I pray, that Christ might be glorified. In His name, amen. You may be seated. Good morning. I'm thankful you're here. I pray you have a Bible. If you do, please open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. If you do not have a Bible and you'd like one, please raise your hand and we will bring one to you. We, uh, we do expository preaching at Camden Avenue. That means we work through books of the Bible and we preach as God determines according to His Word. And we've done that for years now and I imagine that we'll continue to do that for many more years to come. We find it profitable to hear from God and not from man. God has much to say to His children if we have ears to hear, and I pray we do this morning. We're going to be looking at the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 11 through 30. We're going to be dealing with two main themes, one of which is this call to service, faithful service in the Lord, and then we're going to have a look at Judas, and it is, uh, for those of you who know this part of the Gospel, this is a most disturbing part. This is where Judas actually betrays Christ and he moves to that end. And so we'll look at that toward the end of the passage. There's a book written by Thomas Oden called Radical Obedience. And in it he writes this. He said, Radical obedience to God is not a work. Rather, it must be understood as a deed, an act in which one's whole being participates. He says, In work, the self goes alongside the doing. In a deed, one becomes something new in the deed itself. Now, most of the time when you talk about obedience or service, and, we, and Christians hear that, they're thinking of something, some work they have to do because the Bible's told them to do it. Something they must, they must bring alongside themselves. When Christ calls us to obedience, as we will see today, He is calling for the whole person, heart, mind, soul, and strength, to engage in the great work of the gospel. And he does that knowing that if you faithfully love him and follow him and engage in this service, he knows that it's going to change you. It won't be external, it'll be internal. When I ask my son to change the oil in my car, if it is only work to him and he does it because I am his father and he obeys me because I'm his father, but he has no real desire to do it, he has no desire to do the work or to serve me or to love me in this way, then that work will have no impact on him. But if he says, okay, Dad, I'm going to exercise this deed, 
and I'm going to change the oil with all my might, and I'm going to do it because I love you, and I'm going to do it because I love Christ, then that very deed, something as simple as changing the oil in my car, has the ability through the Holy Spirit to make him anew. You say, well, how so? Because he's dying to that selfish tendency of not wanting to serve, and he's submitting to that glorious desire to serve in Christ, and he becomes a new man through it. Odin put it like this. He said, obedience to God involves constantly giving up the illusion that one can gain authentic life on his own. And that is the illusion that we live under, that we can find real life apart from God, apart from serving Christ. This morning, by God's grace, I want us to hear Jesus calling us to serve in this glorious, great work of the gospel, calling his church, his people to serve with all of who we are, so I don't want you to hear these teachings, these commands that Christ gives as a work that you, you must do because Jesus said so. I want you to see them as deeds that he calls you to participate in out of your love for him and his love for you and him knowing that if you do, that it will change you and it will change you for the better. It will make you as he is. And I want us to also look at what happens when you reject this calling. And we're going to see that in the life of of Judas. Judas held on to his fallen nature, his fallen manhood. And when we refuse a future of faith and a future of love and a future of obedience in Christ that he offers through the cross, the end is darkness, as we will see today. So, that being said, three things I want us to see from the passage. Number one, service modeled. Christ models service for us. Number two, service affirmed. He comes along and he says, You got to keep doing that you got to keep living like that. And then number three, service that is refused. And it's refused by Judas. Christ offers it to him, and Judas says no. Point number one, service modeled. Most of you who are members here and you know me well, you know that I'm not tech savvy. I'm not. I'm not a fool when it comes to it, but I'm certainly not savvy either. There is one thing, though, that I use quite often, and those are the instructional videos on YouTube. I find it quite amazing compared to 20, 30 years ago when I had to do a particular task. If I want to, but say I want to change the head gasket on a car or I want to put up some uh, uh, subway tile backsplash, I can read about it, I can go online, and it's amazing. There is almost everything that you want to do, someone's done a YouTube video of it. And, and you can find multiple ones, some good, some not so good. But I can read about it, I can watch it, and then I can go do it. It's an amazing thing. The disciples did not have YouTube. The disciples were instructed by Jesus Christ on how to live a servant's life, but they had something infinitely better. They had God in the flesh. They had Jesus Christ personally showing them, teaching them and modeling for them what this radical transformation of heart looks like. And as we pick up in verse 12, we find that Jesus and our disciples, they're in the upper room, they're in Jerusalem, and and they're going to celebrate the Passover meal, and it's Thursday night. And we talked about this last week. He's less than 24 hours from the cross. He's less than 24 hours from his arrest and his persecution. He's in the midst of the throes of that as he contemplates dying for the sins of many. And then what does he do? He calls the disciples to this upper room and he intentionally makes sure there's no servant or slave there. Why? So he could wash their feet. So he could engage in the, one of the lowliest acts their culture saw, and that was the cleansing of a man's feet or a woman's feet before a meal. And so Jesus makes the arrangements, makes sure there's no slave there, and then he expresses his love for them 
by getting on his knees and taking that, that, that basin of water and that towel wrapped around his waist. And one by one, he goes to the disciples and he takes their filthy feet and he scrubs them with those beautiful hands of his and he washes them clean. And he does it because he wants them to know how much he loves them. It is an expression of radical love, Christ for his disciples. But he also does it because he wants to show them that this is how they are to live. These are the humble, selfless hearts that he wants them to have. And so he figures better than just saying it, I'm going to show them. Look at verse 12. We're told that when he, Christ, had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place at the table, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. And then in 16, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So he he washes their feet. He sits down at the table and he says, Do you understand what I've done? And he wasn't saying, do you understand why I washed your feet? They understood that. That was part of their cultural norm. He's saying, do you understand the principle behind it? Do you understand the love that's undergirded my doing this very act of lowly service to you, my disciples? He had already shown them for three years what it means to love people like this. He had already taught to them on multiple occasions, what this servant-like love looks like. Matthew 23, 11, he said, the greatest among you shall be what? Shall be your servant. The greatest shall be your servant. He says in Matthew 20, 16, the last will be first and the first will be last. But here, he wants to make it so real that he becomes the servant, he grabs their feet and he makes sure that they're personally going to encounter the creator of the universe condescending to his disciples and cleansing them. He wants to make sure they get it. Look at verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord. It actually says in the Greek, you call me the teacher and the Lord. And you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And so he says, you've you've called me the teacher and the Lord because that's who I am. He affirms their, their understanding of his Messiahship. He affirms that. But then he says, that's true, and yet what have I done? What have I done? I am God. I am the Messiah. I have gotten on my knees with a bowl of water and I've washed your feet. And so he makes this wonderful separation. And notice in verse 14, he goes from saying the teacher and the Lord to Lord and teacher. That's not a mistake, by the way. That's to magnify his preeminence as God. He says, you're calling me God and you're right, I am God. And what have I done? I have washed your feet. I, the living God the creator of all that is seen and unseen, the very one who made their flesh and put life in them is washing their feet. And therefore, he says, if I, your superior in every way, have loved you like this, like this, a servant love, a lowly love, he says, then you, as my inferiors in every way, you ought to do it. Here's the deed, not the work. You ought to do it. All your heart, mind, soul, and strength to one another, for one another. If Jesus Christ, being God, served sinners in this way, my beloved, then we, we being sinners, how much more so ought we love one another in this way, in this sacrificial way? Verse 15, he said, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. He said, I'm I'm modeling it for you. 
In other words, if you say, I'm not going to love like that, you know what you're saying. You're, You're putting yourself above God because God loves like that. Christ loves like that. So if you're saying, I'm not going to stoop down. There's no way I would wash someone's feet. Today, from a cultural standpoint, you shouldn't be washing someone's feet. It would be a very weird thing to do. But there are many things that we ought to do to serve people like this. Changing the oil in someone's car would be like washing their feet. But if you say no, then you're elevating yourself above God. And then Christ warns us on that. Look at verse 16. He says, truly, truly, verily, verily, I say to you. So this is an important statement. A servant is not greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So he says, be very careful, my beloved. Do not elevate yourself to a place where we ought not be. Do not place yourself in a kingdom higher than you ought to be. He's the creator of the universe, and he serves us like this. That means, this may be a hard thing for some of you to hear, so open your ears nice and wide. It is fitting for any man to serve any other man in any way he or she can. There's nothing beneath us. There's nothing beneath us if we are saved in Christ. No work, no service, so lonely, so lowly or so despicable that you can say, I would never do that. That is beneath me. There is no such thing. And there is no person so lowly or so despicable that you can say, I would never serve that person. That person does not exist, especially in the body of Christ. Matthew chapter 25, verse 40, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, as you serve one of the least of these brothers of mine, he says, you've done it to me. So Jesus wants his disciples, he needs his disciples to get a correct picture of their place in the kingdom of God because he knows if they do not, they will not love well. If you think more highly of yourself than you ought, then pride and not humility will capture your heart. And the number one casualty of pride will be your lack of service and your lack of love for other people because you will look down upon them and you will see them in a way that you ought not. Jesus concludes this great commission and it is a commission to serve. He's calling his children to serve in love. Look at verse 17. He said, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Know what things? How to wash feet? Of course not. He's saying if you know these things, plural, if you know this servant love of which I speak, if you know the, the captivated heart that has been born again by Christ, that looks upon the world and people very differently than the heart of stone, he says, if you know this principle, and it is a fundamental principle for the believer, that you have a heart that desires to serve and desires to sacrifice, out of your love for Christ and your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ and out of your love for the lost, He says, if you know these things, then you are truly blessed. If what? If you do them. Knowing here is not sufficient. He says, you are blessed if this servant love captivates you and becomes a defining characteristic of you as a person. This is who you are. You are a servant. You do not serve because you're commanded to. You serve because you're a servant. And this is the transformation that Christ wants of his disciples, and I would argue wants of us today as well. Jesus says, if you know this kingdom principle and you do it, you exercise it for all the right reasons, he says, you'll be blessed. You know that word blessed can also mean happy? I know evangelicals get so weird about us saying we can be happy. You know God desires, intends for you to be happy. Do you know that? Amen is right. It also can mean that you you will be envied in a life to be envied. 
in God's upside-down kingdom, everything that we see here, he turns around and says, no, that's not right. Because everything here has been perverted. In God's economy, happiness and blessing is not what the culture or your flesh tells you. It's not being waited upon hand and foot. It's not the lifestyle of the rich and famous. It's not having people at your beck and call. It's not consuming everything. It's not having everything. It's not having more toys than your neighbor. And it's not, certainly not, entertaining yourself every moment of every day. True happiness, true blessings, a life to be envied in the kingdom of God is found in Christ and following him. It's found in Jesus Christ and then living the life that Christ has called you to live. And that is a sacrificial, other-centered service life. Serving others. And that means a mere knowledge of this does you no good. In fact, I would say it would be horrible for you to hear this say, oh, I'm called to serve and then not serve. Because now you know better. When you serve, the blessing is that in the doing, you become the very man or woman you've been called and equipped to be. You become that person. It doesn't, it's not a work, it's a deed. And in the deed with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you actually are blessed. You actually are happy. You are to be envied. And that is the state of the Christian, or to, should be anyway. I think I mentioned this last week. I think one of the reasons that Christians are so melancholy and lack so much joy is because we're not serving one another. We're so busy trying to serve ourselves. We can't figure out, why am I not happy? More service to myself. Why am I not happy? More service to myself. Christ said, blessed are you if you know these things and you do them. A heart born again in Christ, it longs to serve. It rejoices in the opportunity to serve. In fact, the longer you walk with Christ, the more you realize How not so satisfying anymore is it when you continuously consume the things that satisfy the flesh. The longer you walk, the more you realize there is great joy and great blessedness in actually serving and ministering to others, those in need, doing the things that I would not do if I thought myself better than others. Years ago, there was a a movie, an older movie. Some of you probably remember it if you saw it called The Family Man. And it was one of those movies I think we rented, and I had no expectations of it because I don't have many expectations for most movies. Most are terrible. It starred Nicolas Cage as a single, self-centered, egotistical, wealthy, corporate executive who had, in his mind, everything that he wanted. And then he gets what's called a glimpse. It's really a prolonged dream, and that takes up the majority of the movie. And he wakes up, he wakes up a married man. He's married to a college sweetheart. And instead of living in New York, being a very successful member of the corporate life, he is in the suburbs. And instead of being single, he's married. And instead of having no children, he has two children. And instead of working for this major corporation, he's selling tires and driving a minivan. And he's just furious. He can't believe what's happened to him. And so as he wrestles through this experience of living, in his mind, the ideal life, single man, very wealthy, Manhattan, something changes in him. And he actually begins to love this wife that was given to him and these children that are his. He begins to serve. And as he serves them and as he ministers them, he begins to change. And then the end of the movie comes and he has to go back because it's just a glimpse. And that's what this man says to him. It's just a glimpse. You can't stay. And he's grieving now because he is truly happy. He's happy in the humility. He's happy in the service. And he realized the emptiness 
of his previous life that was all about him and not about anybody else. Most in the Western church, I would argue, still miss this most simple biblical principle. We fight for happiness by indulging in all the wrong things. All the pleasurable things that we think we go for food, and we certainly in this time and age, we go for entertainment. We go for more leisure, and we go for more hobbies, or more sleep, or more money, or more work, and you can add whatever on that list you need to add that you know that will not provide the happiness and the blessed state that Christ offers here in knowing Him and following Him. And this is by no means a new problem. We see it throughout the history of the church. The great Puritan Thomas Manton, he said it, said it like this. He said, it is, a na- it is as natural for the reasonable creature to desire to be happy as it is for fire to burn. But, he said, we do not make a right choice of the means that may bring to us that happiness that we so desire. Rather, we choose means quite contrary to happiness. And so we see that longing in the church today of people desiring true biblical happiness. And they look for it in all the wrong places. Instead of going to Christ and finding their joy and satisfaction in Him and then living the life that He's called you to live, to be a humble, gracious, loving servant, we search after those things the flesh calls to us. We miss verse 17. Look at it again. He says, if you know these things, if you know the life of a humble servant in my kingdom. And if you exercise that life, it says you will be happy if you do them. So first I pray that we see that Christ models this service for us. And he not only shows it to us, he says, if you, if you can catch this, maybe we need a glimpse. Maybe we need a prolonged dream like Nicolas Cage. And we actually begin to live a life that God has called us to live, finding true transformation of heart. You get a taste of godly service for all the right reasons, and that taste will be cultivated to a a true, right, biblical passion to serve. So first, we see Christ as the model for this. I want you to see, secondly, that he affirms this, even to his disciples. Second point, service affirmed. I think most of us would admit that there are times when we serve well. Most Christians engage in service of this manner when things in their life are good. Things are easy, right? Things are going exactly as we want them to go because we are seated upon the throne and things seem to be going as we have determined. Sacrifice during those times seems minimal because life is easy. But what do we do? How do we continue to serve in loving obedience, in humility, when things get really difficult? I mean, how how are we to serve others with a humble heart when when your marriage is just about ready to end or you, your boss has told you that pink slip is right around the corner and you may not have money to pay the bills. How do we condescend to love others when we don't feel loved by others? What do you do when you've just been diagnosed with cancer or your oldest son ends up back in jail? What do you do when your best friend betrays you? The, the response that I've seen over the years in the pastorate is isolation. Most people who are serving, when things get really difficult, they draw in. They lock doors. They circle the wagons. And they think, I've got, I've got to care for me. I've got to take care of me. Because things are hard right now. And if I serve others, then I'm going to lose more of myself. So I've got, got to protect myself. What if there's another way to approach that? 
What if Jesus tells us to exercise our commission as servants, to love in humility and exercise godly service in the midst of crisis when things are very difficult? What if he says you've got to stay the course when it's good or it's bad? And this is what he's saying to his disciples. No matter how hard it gets, continue to love, continue to serve. And what if he modeled that for us? Look at verse 16 again. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So he establishes this fundamental principle for all people in all places at all times, not just good or bad. And then he says says something in verse 18 that would absolutely rock the disciples' world. Look at verse 18 and following. Jesus said, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. You know what Jesus tells them? There's a traitor in your midst. There's a traitor in your midst, one of the 12, one that Christ himself chose is going to betray Jesus. Well, someone they spent three years with, someone they lived with and they ate with and they ministered together with, someone is going to go against Christ. And our Lord here, as he does so often, he actually quotes the Old Testament. He quotes Psalm 49, 41, verse 9, and it's a psalm from David. And it points to, it's a prophetic psalm that points to Judas Iscariot, the one who was going to betray Christ. Psalm 41.9, David said this, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. To lift his heel is to go against or to rail against. Now most believe that David is talking about Ahithophel. Do you remember Ahithophel from 2 Samuel? I pray that you do. Ahithophel was, was one of David's most trusted counselors. And when Absalom rebelled against David and David fled the city, Ahithophel sided with Absalom. In fact, David was so concerned about this man's counsel. Remember, he sent Hushai and he says, you got to go and you got you to confuse him because if Absalom listens to Ahithophel, then I'll never regain the throne. And so Hushai, the archite, goes to Jerusalem and he confuses Ahithophel and he con- actually confuses Absalom. And Ahithophel knows that if, if Absalom does not follow his counsel, then he has no hope, and he doesn't. And then we're told in 2 Samuel 17, 23, that Ahithophel, after, after Absalom refused his counsel, Ahithophel saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order, and what did he do? He hanged himself. He hanged himself. And Jesus is drawing upon this hanging, this deception, this betrayal of Ahithophel and David to point to point to Judas. And so this had been set before anything ever transpired that night, that Thursday night, in that upper room. Ahithophel was the Old Testament type and shadow of the Judas that was to come. And Jesus wants his disciples, he needs his disciples to know that he's fully aware of this, that Jesus is not being caught off guard. He knew Judas was going to betray him when he picked him. He knew 
that that night, Judas would be overcome by Satan and engage in this most horrific act. And he needs his disciples to know, not only did I know this, but I prophesied to it, and I'm the one that is overseeing it. Everything is transpiring. God is allowing, Christ is allowing to take place exactly as had been decreed before the foundations of the world. And he needs his disciples to know this for a very important reason. In a matter of hours, he's going to be arrested. And then he's going to be killed. And the disciples are going to be scattered. For three years, they worked together, they served together, they ministered together. And now the shepherd's going to be struck and the sheep are going to scatter. And he needs to know that in the midst of these next several hours and days, that he is omniscient, his foreknowledge is known, and that he is sovereign over all these details. In other words, he wasn't a helpless victim. He was allowing Judas and Satan to move in this direction because that's what had been decreed. Jesus had mastery over the entire situation. Remember verse 3. The Father had given all things into his hands. And so that their faith would not be shaken. Look at verse 19. So that they would be emboldened, not shaken. He says, I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, telling them about the betrayal of Judas, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Same word, that you may have faith that I am he. That your faith in me doesn't just deteriorate to nothing. And that when you, when you scatter, you don't ever come back. He's saying that your ministry is going to be hard too. And just because it's difficult doesn't mean you haven't been commissioned to this great calling. In fact, verse 20 is a really weird position for the verse. When I first looked at it, I thought, why is this here? Do you know what it is? It's a reaffirmation, a recommissioning of the disciples. Look at it again. Truly, truly, verse 20, truly, truly, very important. I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So Jesus is saying, Judas is going to rebel. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be falsely accused. I'm going to be beaten beyond recognition. I'm going to be nailed to a cross, and then I'm going to be buried in a tomb. And in the midst of all this, stay the course. He's saying, don't lose your commission. The mission is still intact. Jesus is saying, I've called you. And if I send you out, whoever receives you receives me. And if they receive me, they receive the Father, the one who sent me. The mission is still in place. Judas's betrayal was going to rock their world, and it should have, that one of their own, one of the ones that Jesus picked was going to betray Christ unto death. But Jesus is saying, it can't ruin you. It can't wreck the mission. One commentator put it like this. He said, let Judas do what he will. The mighty work of Jesus and his sender remains unaffected. I love that. Let Judas do whatever Judas wants to do. Let the world come against Christ and his church in any way they want. Let every enemy come against the church of Jesus Christ and do what they will. Jesus Christ, the great mission of the cross, and the gospel will prevail. And this can be said of every enemy of God and every hater of the church and every hater of you and your faith. Do what you may. The work of Christ and the cross and the mission continues to its redemptive end. The church will prevail because its head, Jesus Christ, has prevailed. Jesus said the very gates of hell cannot overcome the church of Christ. That means, my beloved, and you heard us sing it, when it seems like all the forces of evil have aligned themselves against you, 
when every day seems like a horrible battle, and you say, my life, my ministry, my church, my relationships, I'm under this constant attack, you need to hear Christ this morning. He's saying, don't be shaken. Don't be shaken. Don't lose focus on the ministry. Don't lose focus on the great mission, your commission, to go and love and serve and minister the gospel of grace. He says, don't lose that. Don't, don't do what we do today. You hear some passion because this is the great struggle for most pastors. They see someone struggling. They see sin coming in, and they see the dominions of darkness coming, and they try to help that person. That person, they draw away. They go home. They lock doors. They miss church. Don't do that. Hard to help, hard to love, hard to minister when you can't get people to be loved and ministered to. Do the exact opposite. That's what Christ is saying to the disciples here. He said, listen, it's going to get really bad. And he's saying, the next few hours are going to be horrible for you. In fact, the next few days, until he rises again, you're going to be in crisis mode. You're going to be running for your lives. You're going to be trying to protect yourselves. You're going to be confused. He's saying, don't lose focus. The mission is in place. You've still been commissioned to this great work, and the great work the Holy Spirit's going to do through you. It means that when you're in the midst of that mess, and it seems like your shepherd has been crucified and no longer over you and no longer guiding you, do the opposite of what your flesh tells you to do. Don't isolate. Press into the body of Christ. Don't go home. Gather. Don't stop reading your Bible. Open the Word of God and be fed by it. Don't cease to pray. Pray more. Don't, here, don't stop serving. Don't stop serving. And begin to serve yourself. When you do that, the flesh has more power. Do the opposite. When it is so hard for you to serve, serve more. When you, when you find yourself hiding, come out of that hiding and bless others. I don't know of any greater way to come out of yourself than to spend time blessing others. I mean, you can get over yourself by spending time loving others. Licking the wounds doesn't do, doesn't do for us what we think it's going to do. Continue to serve in the midst of your suffering. He wants them to see this. He's saying, keep washing the feet, right? Keep loving. Keep ministering. Keep doing the work of the gospel as long as you can because that time is short. The window's short for you, for us. Press on toward the cross as Christ did. We're told here in another verse that Jesus was deeply troubled and yet we saw that in agony, our Lord pressed on toward Calvary for us. He modeled it perfectly for us. If there was any man in human history who had an opportunity to go hide, it would have been Christ when he's begging the Father in the garden, if there's any other way, Lord, let this cup pass from me. But he says, but thy will be done, your will be done. He kept his eyes on the cross. He kept his eyes on the Father, and he kept his eyes on you because he knew that if he didn't do that, he couldn't redeem you. And there's no greater example, no greater display of someone in the midst of total crisis actually dying for our sins and being separated from the Father than Jesus Christ. But he stayed the course. He stayed the course. He continued to serve and serve and serve. So Jesus Christ, he models it for us. He affirms it again. And I'll give you one more point and we'll close. He says, if you reject this service, which is the calling, 
to follow him and be a disciple of his. It says, if you reject it, then the end will only be darkness for you. Look at verse 21. It's after saying these things, after this great teaching, the washing of the feet and, and the, the revelation that, um, that they are to serve and the teaching that there's a traitor. After saying these things, it says Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And the, the English doesn't really magnify that well. We're talking about the creator being troubled, deeply troubled, sorrowful, broken in his spirit. Why? Well, he just pulled the trigger to his own crucifixion. He just, he just set Judas loose. Judas is going to go do what he's going to do. So he's hours away from this, this right conclusion to the ministry of a suffering servant. But he's also troubled. I don't want us to miss this. He's troubled for Judas. He loves Judas. In fact, when Judas comes to talk to him, he says, friend. He identifies him as a friend, even in the garden, as Judas is betraying him. So Judas is someone that Jesus loves deeply, and he sees that Judas is on a collision course with Satan and hell. And so he is deeply grieved at the horrific crime that Judas is going to commit, and it was the worst crime ever committed. I mean, he handed over God to be executed. There is no greater crime than to move to execute the Creator, which is what Judas did. And so Jesus speaks to his disciples plainly. Look at verse 21. It says that he testified. He's testifying. He's speaking truth plainly. Truly, truly. Here we have the emphasis again. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So the veil's off. He's saying, listen, one of you, there are 12 in the room, one of you is going to come after me and betray me and hand me over to be arrested and to be murdered by the Sanhedrin. There's silence. The disciples looked at one another, verse 21, uncertain of whom he spoke. I, I imagine. <laughs> I mean, they were three years together, ministering, eating, living, and now one of them is going to hand over the master. One of them is going to hand over the Lord. We're told in Matthew twenty six twenty two a parallel passage, that they were very sorrowful, the disciples, and began to say to Jesus, one after the other, is it I, Lord? Surely you do not mean me, Lord. I mean, that's an amazing thought. They're saying, am I the one? Am I going to surrender you? Am I going to turn you over? We're told in Luke twenty two twenty three that they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. How difficult it is to see one another. How truly difficult it is to know someone, is it not, saints? No one stood up. Not one of the disciples said, it's Judas. It's Judas. I've known all along. I've never trusted that one. No one says that. They look around. They say, who is it? Is it you? And they say, is it me? But no one points to Judas. You say, well, how can that be? How could they not have known Hypocrisy runs deep. Hypocrisy veils self and others, especially religious hypocrisy. Judas served with Jesus and the other 11 all three years of the ministry. He was there for all the miracles. He listened to all the teachings. Judas performed miracles too. He cast out demons. And yet no one knew that he was the betrayer. 
I dare say he did not know even till that time. He looked the part of the disciple, but on the inside, Jesus said he was a devil. He was the son of perdition. Saints, there is such a great warning for us here. It's not for you to start looking around saying, all right, who's going to betray Christ? It's for you to examine your own heart that you're not veiled by the hypocrisy of a false faith. I dare say there are many today in churches across this country and across the world who have made a profession of Christ and in their hearts they still betray Him. Not knowing got the best of Peter. Look at verse 23. One of His disciples whom Jesus loved, John is talking of himself. One of His disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. To be handed a a piece of bread, they would dip it, and then to to be handed that by the host of a meal like this was to be honored. Instead of blurting out his name, instead of Jesus saying, it's Judas, one more attempt to capture his heart. Do you see this? One more attempt to hand him bread in honor, to honor Judas and say, Judas, don't do it. Don't turn. Repent. Be made clean. It's an extension of love. And this is the last one. This is the last one that Christ can give to him. We're told in verse 27 that after Judas had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. Satan came in. Matthew 26, 25, we're told that after receiving the morsel, Judas said to Jesus, now listen, this is important because this is how all the other disciples knew. Judas says to Jesus, is it I, Rabbi? And Jesus said to him, you have said so. Yes, it's you. And all the disciples at that time knew. Judas had closed his heart completely. The gospel now was shut out. Satan had now entered. He had fully surrendered himself. Up to that point in time, there was still a battle, but now he had surrendered. And now he was going to partner with Satan to engage in the worst act in human history to kill the Christ, to kill God. Now, lest you think that Jesus has lost control of the situation, look at verse 27. Jesus is still in complete control. He is the sovereign God. He said to Judas, now he's directing Judas, what you're going to do, he says, do quickly. Now, no one, verse 28 at the table, knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Verse 30. So after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out, and it was night. The disciples have no idea where he's going, but they do know he's the betrayer. They know that. We know from the other gospel accounts that Judas immediately leaves the upper room. He goes directly to the temple. He goes before the Sanhedrin. He collects his 30 pieces of silver. He grabs the temple guard and they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane and they arrest Christ. He does it that very night. 
Now, even though the disciples did not know where he was going, I do not believe one of them thought that it would be that night that Christ would be handed over. They thought, okay, Judas is going to betray him, but they didn't know how. They didn't know it was going to be effective. And I don't believe they knew that it was going to be in a matter of hours. They were going to leave the upper room and they were going to go together to this place where they prayed regularly. And they were going to pray and then Judas would come and Christ would be arrested and their worlds would come apart. That very night. And John ends this this dialogue with this chilling statement. And I, I pray that when you read it for the first time, it caused you to shudder a bit. John says, and it was night. He's not giving us a chronology of events here. He's saying it was night. There was darkness. Darkness had come. For Judas, Judas would never see the light of day again. It was night for Judas. And we know from the gospel accounts that after Jesus was arrested, Judas ran back to the temple. Well, I'll read it to you. Matthew 27, 5. He returned to the Sanhedrin. He threw down the 30 pieces of silver into the temple. He departed and he went. And just like Ahithophel, he hanged himself and fulfilled the prophecy of Psalm 41, 9. He hanged himself. He never saw the light of day again. And so the treachery of that night for Judas became a permanent state. He entered into the darkness, and it was night. It was night for Judas for all eternity. It is night for Judas at this very moment on that dark night that he betrayed the Savior, and he refused salvation. Christ said to Judas, he handed him that morsel, and that was repent and believe and follow me. And Judas said, no, I will not. And he opened himself up to Satan himself. And he entered into the utter darkness, the outer darkness, that place where the Bible says there's wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth. We know it to be hell. Judas lived to serve himself and to maintain a self-centered heart of stone. He ended up selling his soul to Satan himself. There's an old English adage that says this. Listen closely, saints. Still as of old, man by himself is priced. For 30 pieces, Judas sold himself, not Christ. He sold himself, not Christ. The man who refuses grace. The woman who says, I will not be saved. The person who turns away from the gospel message, which is hope in Jesus, trust in Jesus. If you do that, it is on you. You are selling yourself. How many souls this day will gather in a church and hear the gospel of grace and the real hope of faith in Jesus Christ? How many will hear it today and walk outdoors just like that and not receive Christ? And they will be in that dark night. And if they don't repent and they don't believe, they will enter that eternal darkness and they will join Judas. My beloved, this ought not be your end. You were created by God to know God, not as a judge, but as a father. You were created by God to have Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your brother. You were created to have the Holy Spirit dwell in you 
so that you can love God and serve God by loving and serving one another. This is why you were made. This is the glory for which you were made. You have been called, if you're in Christ, and you've been equipped to this most glorious life and glorious end to serve Christ by serving one another. To serve Christ, to love Christ by loving one another. To put the needs of others above your own so that when you do, you glorify God. And when you do, you are most happy. You are most blessed. You are most envied because you're living the life that you're supposed to live. It's so backwards today. The culture tells us and the flesh tells us and many churches tell us that the good life is about consuming. The good life is about you. Christ comes along and he says, no, the good life's about God. The good life is knowing Christ. It's knowing the Father and being loved by the Father and then living the life that the Father has called you to live. And that is one of humility and service. And this commission stands regardless of how difficult your life may be. My beloved, Jesus is seated upon the throne. The gates of hell are not going to prevail against his church. He's still reigning. And that means no matter how difficult your life may be, do not use those excuses to turn away from Christ and to hide yourself and not serve and not love and not minister. It's a lie. And if you know Christ, it doesn't mean you lose your salvation, but you have been duped. You have been lied to and you bought the lie. If you think the way out of your discouragement or your depression or your lack of joy is just to feed yourself. We must learn from this tragic ending of Judas. The hypocrisy of the human heart is wickedly deceptive. Jesus played the part, Judas played the part as one of the twelve for three years. But he didn't want Christ as king. He wanted an earthly king. He wanted money. He wanted power. Jesus Christ came as an eternal king. He came as the suffering servant who would serve like no other by going to the cross, by having his body nailed upon that cross, and him receiving in his flesh our sins. Why would he do that? He would do that for everyone, including Judas, had he repented and believed. He did that so that anyone who puts their faith in him, who says, I am a sinner, I am deserving of the outer darkness, my life is well-deserving of the life of a Judas Iscariot. I am a traitor as well. Christ died upon that cross so that you, this day, this very hour, can say to him, I am a sinner. Forgive me. Have mercy upon me. And then receive it. When he did the ultimate act of service on the cross, he pours out on a fallen man. He pours out God's mercy and grace and love and his own righteousness. He sets us free from our self-centered hearts. He not only saves us, but he says, listen, I'm, I'm going to impart to you my righteousness. I'm going to impart to you my love. He gives us faith. He makes us into the people that we're supposed to be, that we've been created to be, sons and daughters of a most glorious king. He offers you, my beloved, the hope of becoming the other-centered, loving servant that you were made for. And in so doing, 
knowing true happiness, what it means to be blessed. To cling to your fallen nature as Judas did is to surrender in becoming the one you're supposed to be. One commentator said man is confronted with two possibilities, either to cling to his fallenness or to receive God's future. And that's it. You have two choices. You can cling to the old man and die like Judas, or you can receive God's future in Christ and be made glorious now and forever. God's future for you in Christ is to know this blessed life that goes beyond measure. I pray by the power of His Holy Spirit, He makes that imminently clear to you this morning. If you do not know Christ, I pray that by His Spirit, He would compel you to cry out for mercy and be saved this day. Judas's end is a most grievous thing and should break our hearts. It does not need to be yours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we admit that our hearts, apart from Christ, know nothing of what it means to be other-centered. We know nothing of what it means to actually serve in love. We know nothing of what it means to be humble. We recognize before you, a most holy God, that our hearts are most unholy. And only by Christ, and only by His sacrifice, only by the service that He entered into upon that cross do we have any hope of being made alive and then brought into this incredible transformation of heart and mind that we might become these people ceasing to work but engaging in the deeds heart, mind, soul. I pray, Father, You would bless us with that. Bless us with that understanding. Help us to know and to do that we might give You glory in the doing. Father, so many churches here in this area are still so self-consumed. We even gather here on a Sunday, a worship service, thinking it's about us. It's about you. It's about your glory and your name and the manifestation of your Son and your kingdom. Father, bless those you've gathered here with that understanding. Take their eyes off themselves and put their eyes upon Christ. Do that for us, I pray. Do that for every church in the South Bay this morning that truly knows and loves you. Do that for your church throughout the world, Lord. Let us fix our eyes upon you and the grace to be brought when you come again in glory. Father, we ask all these things that you might be manifest in our midst, that your glory might be made known. This is why we live, Lord, for your glory. Help us to that end, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.